The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. We have chosen to omit names or use sound effects in this production because the individuals discussed have not been formally arrested, charged, or accused of wrongdoing in the death of Carol Rofstead. The normal police department declined to participate in this podcast. Previously on Carol's Last Christmas. All, all of these are the tips and clues and leads that came in primarily in the first 30 days or 45 days or 60 days after the crime. We took a deep dive into the police files. It seems to me that maybe only six or seven of the 22 were, uh, were followed up uh, in any way, shape, or form. Heavily redacted, though surprisingly revealing. Let's go through them. A caller says a teenager molested a two-year-old girl at the same address. A man was arrested for peeping in the windows. A call about a guy who had beaten up a waitress at a bar. They blew that off. A woman walks into the police station to report that her husband was a sadist. No follow-up in the file. There's, there was never any follow-up on that either. Tunnel vision is going to cause you to do things or to miss evidence or to screw that case up somehow, which is going to result in either the case getting dropped or the person being found not guilty. It's when you begin to totally ignore or disregard anything that may upset your theory. That's when it becomes dangerous. He was a regular at the Red Lion Club. He was getting tossed out frequently for disorderly conduct. The Red Lion was most popular. Oh, it was a hot spot. That's where a lot of bands got their start, like the REO Speedwagon and stuff. Cheap Trip, um, REO Speedwagon, bands that played there. And it was dollar beer, and you know, you kind of walked around and looked for people. In 1975, you were likely to see three guys there, two of them together, a lot. Choir boys, they were not. Well, bloody fist fights were kind of a regular thing at the Red Lion. You know, bodyguards at the door, I, I, know, I know that much. They were always together, and they were constantly getting complaints. One of these men is the bearded suspect, assigned this sound. The second will be identified this way. And the last of the trio? But the bottom line was, um, they were always getting complaints from women that and this other guy were creepy. You'll remember lashed out at Carol Rothstead over an innocent remark. He was pissed. Very quickly pissed. He made a phone call soon after she was attacked. I basically told me that 
She was hit with a railroad tie and she was found laying on the side of the house um, in the snow. He made another phone call after Carol died. And when she didn't survive, he was on the phone with the president of the sorority to announce that she had died. Now, you tell me how he knew all that. He had a beard and wore military garb. Six weeks after Carol's death, he was elected president of the Student Association at ISU. Well, he got elected, so he was liked, I have to say that. And just two days after the election, he would be arrested and charged with attacking another woman. I mean, the only way he could have been more prominent is, is if he had red neon eyes and they were blinking and said, come and get me. From Genuine Human Productions, this is Carol's Last Christmas. I'm a criminal, so despicable, done the unthinkable, and then it feels good to be a criminal, so despicable, done the unthinkable, and then it feels, then it feels good. Chapter 5. A Convenient Confession. The official record shows normal police actively investigated the Rofsted case for about a year, from the day Carol was found to the following fall. It's clear they neglected many leads and didn't have a solid investigative strategy, but to their credit, they stayed with it. In April of 1977, 16 months after Carol died, her dad calls. He's heard about another co-ed murder. Police write, I did advise him that there had not been a murder. We did have a couple of assaults, but nothing that might be similar. Oh, there's no evidence of this or that. And I know my father was so frustrated by the whole thing. Um, he was always so frustrated by the whole thing. And so my mother would do a lot of the talking to them because my dad would get upset with them. And the father had good reason. On the very day he called, the Bloomington Panagraph publishes a story headlined, Rofsted Link Sought in New Co-Ed Attacks. Two sorority women had been attacked in their houses within an hour, first at Illinois Wesleyan University and then at Illinois State. Police say both attacks bore similarity to the two attacks on Carroll. And they concede if there is a link, that may blow their theory that Carol was targeted by her killer. My father all along was disgusted as, you know, as time went on with the way things were going. And they, my mother used to say, I have to keep him uh, from them because, you know, she thought he would start yelling at them and, and that kind of thing. The very next month, May of 1977, a surprise, out of the blue, and police jump on it. A purse snatcher sitting in the county jail says he killed Carol. 
The only thing that I remember them saying was, he said that he did it, but everything he admitted to was something he could have read in the paper. He's 39-year-old David Whitmer. He has a long history of mental illness. He looks nothing like the infamous Wanted sketch. Within a month, bypassing a grand jury, the state's attorney charges him with murder. And he had um, psychotic reasons for wanting to go to the, the higher uh, security prison. Something about like cigarettes or something. And By October of 77, the edgy underground paper, the Post-American with a K, is questioning whether they're prosecuting an innocent man. Retired ACLU attorney Mark Silverstein wrote the lengthy article. Who put the K in American? <laughs> I guess there's only one. I think at first there were three of them. Oh, real? Oh, God. <laughs> the headline is, you know, innocent man could get pinned with the, with the unsolved case, which, by the way, is still unsolved. It seemed to me like, at least knowing what I know about the case, that they were jumping on the chance to charge someone. But, and, you know, some public officials, including the prosecutor, were, were willing to sit down and, you know, talk to us in an interview. I was just a little bit surprised that, uh, that back in the day, the cops were actually telling you who their suspects were by name. If you're letting the daily newspaper behind the desk to look at the blotter, you need to let the Post-American behind the desk to look at the blotter. We had a long-running... Um, campaign against the uh, multi-county enforcement group, which was the, the undercover marijuana police. We would investigate what they were doing. We'd write stories. We'd expose their informers. And, and it got to be that there was quite a following of people that um, uh, would uh, read our articles and then they'd call in tips. The Post-American exposed all the holes in the man's claims and confession. Whitmer would spend three years in custody before the charges were dropped. Here's Carol's sister, Laura. But that was probably as close as your parents ever got to being hopeful. Oh, yeah. But the policemen were telling us at the time they ruled out David Whitmer. You know, this can't be him. Everything that he said, he could have read. And he's in the orange jumpsuit swaying from side to side up there in front of the judge and everything. And obviously, mental patient. 20 years passed with no fresh entries in the case file. Then, in 1996 or 97, no one's sure, detectives took a trip to Tennessee. Presented with little to no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you enjoy our work, please consider making a donation to help. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. 
FM, The Drive, Chicago's classic rock. In two miles, take exit 40B for I-90 West toward Tollway, Rockford. We visited Carol's sister and brother-in-law a few days after Christmas in 2021. First of all, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. And we are so thankful, as you can imagine. We brought a stack of files and talked about getting their help to obtain more records as Carol's next of kin. Yeah, I mean, who has more, more of a, yeah. a stake in this than than her her relatives? I don't see why the interviews with those police officers from now, 13 years ago, you know, wouldn't be gettable. Right, right. They, it's not like, you know, did they have anything new? I'd I mean, who know. knows, right? In April of 2008 is when they started a massive uh, reinvestigation. Right. And I'm just wondering if it's because I was raising the shit. Police did release one audio tape of the family being interviewed in 2008, after George Seibel's class had shaken things up. Were there I didn't, many I didn't people from that. ISU that went to the funeral? Do you know? You're wondering if we saw anybody in the crowd? We were in a complete daze. Even the family's own voices were heavily edited to keep names no. confidential. Approximately. Well, there was over 300 people. There was more like 500 people there. Right. Listen as the conversation begins to unravel the Tennessee ties in this case. Now, I need to ask you something now. That's the voice of Carol's mom, the late Lillian Rothstedt. Let's see, how shall I say that? Um, the, there was a girl, I think, that lived next door that was sort of a mental person. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, is, was that one, was she married to one of those two people? She was or, eventually married to someone that that is named uh, as one of many people that they over the course of years, suspected of being involved, of having knowledge of your daughter's death. Um, but it wouldn't stand up in court, you know, her, her testimony, right? The people that dealt with that at the time did not feel that, I get, without being too specific, she didn't, oh, go ahead, she was not a witness to anything. She was not a witness to your daughter's death. Right. She had suspicions right. of her husband that right. he had committed this act. Right. Mere suspicion alone, even if she was the best witness in all of Earth, would not necessarily mean someone was going to be charged. Mere suspicion alone? A month before their taped meeting with Carol's family in 2008, police re-interviewed a former lieutenant on the force who remembered, Blank lived next door to the sorority house at the time of the homicide. Blank, his wife, suspected he was involved in the Rofsted homicide. In fact, what she told police and her own family over and over never changed. A couple of days after the crime, she contacted the police, as we know, and said, I live with this guy and I'm pretty sure he killed her. 
because he was out that night and he came home uh, he came home with blood all over his face and clothes and then he shaves his head and he takes off for farmer city yeah but normal police dismiss this woman as having psychological problems there was absolutely no question that what she had said about it was valid and that nobody would listen to her as this is the guy he he took a lie box and failed it huh. but, but then he then he said if you want to talk to me you got to give me immunity and they wouldn't do it and that was the end of it that sounds to me like a guy who knows freaking well who did it but it wasn't him that's just how it sounds to me uh, I know they looked at that uh, person and, and we're looking at that person just like we're looking at other names involved in the case and I know where he lives yeah what's his name You need to know or you ask me if you should say. I think that we should probably not say. Probably not say. The only thing that matters is, is they blew it off, thinking that she was not credible. My experience with eccentric people is that they usually make the most, the most credible witnesses because they have no unpure motives, you know. The thing that is important is that if someone is a suspect or a person of interest or a witness, um, I want to talk to them if given the opportunity. And they can say no. Absolutely, they can say no. Right. If something important happens, I will tell you when I can. Yeah. You know, when when um, my family and I met with uh, the two detectives in 2008, they had said we could call them about things and, you know, ask questions and all that. Fourteen years have passed since that promise was made. Carol's parents have both passed away. The family decided to file a Freedom of Information request on their own. They especially wanted to know who in the world took the murder weapon to ISU, and were they disciplined for that? Are they truly saying that there are 3,500 pages of misconduct reports related specifically to your case? Right, and and we were, and, you know, we were thinking, oh my God, and then then trying to figure out what else it could mean. Minimum of 20 employee work hours uh, to retrieve the misconduct matters. Yeah, that's... I, I can't believe that the press, the local press, wouldn't love to, to get their hands on this. I really think we need to go through their process first and, and have, them, have them refuse a couple of different things. You know, they're not going to give us certain things. Uh, 
almost for sure. The response was a wide-ranging denial, basically a form letter. Uh, They sent it at 5.33 p.m. Friday evening. I mean, the family has to try and solve it because they can't be bothered or whatever, you know, or they're just unwilling for whatever reason. You know, we're we're trying to solve this case, and I feel like you're you're not giving us any information that could lead to solving it. In a moment, we're back in Tennessee, looking for yet another possibility. It was a bad vibe, you know. You could tell it was a. You know, it was rough crew. And then there was something about them being some FBI protection program or something. Let me put it like this. Uh, every door on the inside had locks on it. Padlocks, sometimes two or three on the inside. Presented with little or no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you appreciate our work, please consider making a donation to help. Thanks for supporting Carol and our work. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. I love baseball. And I was thinking about our case yesterday when I was watching a spring training baseball game. One announcer said to the other guy, he said, you know, one of the beautiful things about baseball is that you can watch it for years and years and then you'll see something that you've never seen before and you can't believe there there are things like this that you never saw before after seeing a million baseball games. When we started digging into this case in 2020, we had no idea it would lead to Tennessee, where I've lived for nearly 40 years. And there were other unexpected surprises. So we decided to meet up in Chicago at a donut shop. Where else do you meet a career cop? Okay. Loose ends, round robin of loose ends here. So you'll be hearing some chatter and steam milk machines in the background. If when this whole thing started when we met in LaGrange a year ago, March, if you guys had said to me, you know what, once you reach back into the archives and you get a hold of all these old detectives, every one of them will be glad you're doing what you're doing and is trying to be as cooperative as possible, I just would have rolled my eyes and kept my mouth shut because I couldn't believe it. Are they doing foaming milk? They have a lot of nerve. <laughs> I, I said to him, you know, I read a whole bunch of these reports where tips and clues would come in and your, the last paragraph in, in a lot of these reports would say, we'll follow up no, or no further investigation at all. And The most telling thing that he said, he said, you know, George, that was the first murderer I ever worked. And 
that was that was very telling in my eyes. And the other the other thing that he said, I think I called you immediately after he told me this. He also said, "We were lost from the beginning." That was that was the exact quote. We were lost from the beginning. Two decades after the crime, normal police re-interviewed their own officers, and two names surfaced. Oddly enough, both were living in Middle Tennessee. Lieutenant Blank and Sergeant Blank went to interview the man in Tennessee in 1996 or 97. A couple uh, unmarked cars pulled into the driveway, and... Um, Apparently, the first words out of his mouth when they popped their stars on him, he said, "Oh, you're you're here about that girl," and that was uh, that was not prompted by anything that was said previously by the police. And in the course of the conversation, he said that um, if I if I wanted to beat a woman, I wouldn't need a stick to do it. A polygraph was done by the local FBI office was given a polygraph the next day and showed signs of deception. The polygraph was followed up with an interview. The officers were suspicious of a statement made during that interview. He had guilty knowledge and or that he was involved in the crime. Uh, indications were probably that he was present. One other thing that he also said uh, at the time is he said, he said, please don't tell my wife about the weapon or words to that effect. Was well known to local law enforcement and nearby neighbors. When when I was when I was putting together this list, I had mentioned to you I was concerned about you going in alone with all these people, and so I I called the sheriff's department. And I told them who I was. I said, I'm an old Chicago homicide guy. And uh, my, my partner is, uh, is kind of a prominent woman in, in the area and so on. And I'm concerned about her knocking on the wrong door and ending up inside a crack house where bad things could take place. And he said, well, your instincts are pretty good, but you got the wrong drug. He said, you know, he said, you just you just ran through a who's who a crystal meth addicts in our little community. And I said, I said, you don't mean all of them. He said, he said, I, I know who all those people are. When we did roll up to the last known address for this family, it was surrounded in yellow crime tape. We were trying to find the people that live next door at 111. I don't know how to get a hold of them. What happened over there? Um, I don't know. It just caught on caught fire. fire? Yeah, we don't know. Hey, girl. Did you see those pictures? I did. When we first rolled down the house, I was like, Jesus, look what happened to that place. And, of course, it turns out to be 111. Yeah. Wow. Um, How long ago was the fire? Yesterday. No. Yes. (laughs) 
yesterday. How ironic is that? Yeah, and and the people next door that we spoke to, they said uh, they've been problematic. They've, you know, what do they say, Justin? Loudmouths and Mm -hmm. parties and drugs. Yeah. Methamphetamine uh, laboratories often uh, catch fire and burn. So I wouldn't be the slightest bit surprised if that's what was going on there that caused the fire. Sometime around the year 2000, the Rofsted family was told about that lie detector test. We asked about the polygraphs. This is Laura Rofsted's husband, Jim. I went down there. She said, um, he came in, he got polygraphed. His wife with them. Four or five hours later, he blew it. It was all over the place. And he said, don't show my wife the murder weapon. That was 2000. By 2001, was dead. Killed in a one-car crash just days after pleading guilty to assault. The way I heard it is, uh, well, he got all drunk and killed himself down on 64. That's about the detail, you know. That, you One know, car, single car wreck. I'm not sure. Right? The longtime family homestead was sold for delinquent taxes. And that wasn't all that was left behind. Here's the man who bought the property. I think that there was, um, there was something about them being some FBI protection program or something. I don't know if y'all got into all that. You know, the more you dig, you know, the, the sketchier it gets. It's like a movie, you know, it seems like it's the stuff that's going on. May have taken secrets to the grave. Well, let me put it like this. Uh, every door on the inside had locks on it. Padlocks, sometimes two or three. On the inside, it was pretty rough. But I didn't see much paraphernalia, druggy, you know, you know, shotguns and beer bottles. So when I called the phone number, well, I answered the phone, and uh, my storyline was um, essentially truthful, that I'm part of a production company, I'm a cold case investigator, and that we have police documents which indicate the wife was told about, about the crime. I also said that our, our investigative opinion, based upon a year's worth of research, was that was not actively involved in, in the crime, but that he, two of his friends were, which is kind of what I think happened. You know, in, in all fairness, what we would like to do is for the wife to uh, talk to us about it so that we can follow that particular lead and assumption and so on. And so she stopped me in the middle of what I was saying, and she let out a bellow like she was talking to somebody in Memphis. Come here! (laughs) And so uh, some guy that was either high on drugs or just drunk or wacky, got on the phone and what what the F do you want? And I, I said, I am, I'm looking at a police report right now that says that um, when, when uh, two normal Illinois police detectives came to visit, 
She said, I'm not ready to talk yet. So I said, that implies greatly that she knows, and I don't think that it involves her late husband. He ended up saying, you're kind of looking to get hurt, aren't you? I said, well, if if you want to hurt me, I, I suggest you get a good frickin' night's sleep the night before. <laughs> Next time on Carol's Last Christmas. So are you suspecting that there could be some material that could prove DNA somehow? Her clothes, her purse. Um, her tampon, I don't know. Is that fair? Can we test DNA? What's going on? DNA? Normal police department is not chomping at the bit to get it done. The way the evidence was collected back in 1975, because if they didn't do it the way they need to, to do testing, it's, it's futile. If you were going to commit a murder in any city in the United States, Make sure it's in normal Illinois. And I believe everything you hear. Oh, I'm worse than the shame I do. A beautiful nightmare, the usual fanfare. Carol's Last Christmas is a genuine human production reported from interviews with friends, family, and experts, and based on official records obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. Lead investigator George Seibel, Chicago Police Department, retired. Investigator and co-producer, Alexandra Daskalopoulos. Investigator, writer, and narrator, Demetria Kaladimas. Voiceover recreation, Justin Holder. Audio mastering and consultation by Paul Gibson. Music provided rights-free by Artlist, Blue Dot Sessions, Motion Array, and Storyblocks. Original music by Verlin Thompson. Graphics by Orlando Rodriguez and Thalia Kaladimos. Website and promotional material, Thalia Kaladimos and Jim Champis. Our theme song is Criminal by Binge Heard, featuring Katrina Stone, courtesy of Artlist. Carol's Last Christmas is distributed by Radio Misfits. Our sincere thanks to the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press for pre-publication review, and to those who knew and loved Carol and generously shared their stories.